All right, well, here we are in the final, um, final chapter of our study of the wise men, and we'll go back to the chapter we've gotten pretty familiar with so far in the last month, uh, Matthew chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. We'll read that one final time. This is the narrative that um, surrounds Jesus' birth, and particularly when the wise men came to pay him homage uh, from those distant lands. I want to read this one more time. And each week this month, we've been singling out various aspects of what we can learn from the wise men in their journey of seeking Jesus, recognize that we also are on a journey of seeking Jesus as individuals. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the law, and he asked, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel." Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. When you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him, and then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Okay, so in the last few weeks, we've learned quite a bit about these characters, these magi. They were wise men, probably from either Babylon or Persia. And they were reading the ancient prophecies, some of the ones that you could still find in the Old Testament, the ones that also the Jewish leaders had ac access to, but those Jewish leaders weren't paying attention, and here these people from far away were, and they make this long journey all the way to Jerusalem to find this newborn king of the Jews. Now, when we think about that journey and the number of miles that it was, like to literally traverse across the desert, and the challenges that it would have represented, we recognize this was not a journey that you just undertook on a whim. This was a, this, they had a plan, quite a bit of planning for this. And they really had three goals that would all have, they'd have to hit 100% here. Goal number one, follow the right star. There's lots of symbols, there's lots of, there's lots of stars out there. So are we sure we're heading the right direction? If you do go the, direction, the right direction, have you found the right king to bow down to? And then lastly, if we do find this newborn king, what do we present to him? It would be kind of strange to travel for all that time and go through all those perils to then end up in front of a, the newborn king and not have anything or not even know what you're there to do. So they had to plan all this out. And I suspect even as they thought about those gifts that they were going to bring, they, they had to pre-plan to bring those on the journey. They couldn't like go to an ATM and go, okay, now I found the right king. I need to withdraw some money and buy him gifts. No, they had to plan all of this way ahead of time. So the whole journey, they had so much faith that not only the prophecies were true, but that they would find what they were looking for at the end of this, uh, at the end of this trek, okay? So if they would meet Jesus, what would they actually do in that moment? 
So I wanted to walk through our text a little bit and then talk with you here this Christmas Eve morning about the kind of gift that you and I would present to Jesus as we seek Him and as we aim to meet Him. Okay, so going back to verse 10, it says that when these wise men saw the star, they were filled with joy. So right, right out of the gate here, we see that they had a positive, proactive attitude as they walked into the presence of the king. And, and I think about that, you could walk into a king's presence with any number of possible attitudes. I, I don't think they would have undertaken this long journey with a bad attitude necessarily, but I think you, you walk in and you, maybe you've got your own agenda when you go to see a king. Maybe for us, since we don't really have kings in our culture, thankfully, right now, we, maybe for us it would be like if we realized we were going to meet a billionaire tomorrow. You know, wouldn't you start calculating like, well, what should, I, what should I wear? What should I ask? Or what should I bring up? Or, you know, you're kind of hoping maybe there'll be some sort of a handout there. And so as they come to present themselves to the king, that's a pretty significant question. Like, what are you, what are you planning to say and do when you walk into his presence? Okay, I think about the attitude options they had, and as I was considering this, I was reminded of some of the different attitudes of people that met Jesus for the first time throughout his life. And if you're along for the journey of reading a, a, a chapter of the Gospel of John every day, we started that back on December 10th, and we're trying to read through John before the end of the year. There have been a number of characters that when they are introduced to Jesus and they recognize who he is or who he claims to be, they have to decide what their attitude will be in that moment. So I think about some people meet Jesus and they immediately have resistance in their heart. This was like those, those leaders in John chapter 8 that were really bad guys. In fact, Jesus looked at them and said, you're just like your father, the devil. Okay, so they were, they were in bad shape. But when they met Jesus, their attitude was, there's no way we're bowing to you. And in fact, you should probably bow to us because you're the one that's in trouble, not us. And so they, their whole worldview was backwards. And so they had very stiff knees. There's no way they're going to bow, right? In some ways, it's a little familiar because you think if you're red-blooded American and somebody asks you to bow down, like you say, we're going to bow to no one, right? Well, maybe on earth that's true, but as they said in the American Revolution back in the good old days there, there's no king but King Jesus. And that actually was a slogan of the Continental Army a long time ago. Uh, so there's no way we're bowing for an earthly king, but hey, Jesus is on a different level than all of that, okay? So some people, when they meet a king, they resist. And they say, I don't really want this person to be a king because I don't, I don't want to not be the king myself. I'd rather be in charge. Some people would meet Jesus with hesitation. So this is like Nicodemus in John 3, where he was potentially a believer. He did become a believer later, as we find out later on in the story. But when he met Jesus in John 3, he was hesitant. He didn't really want other people to know that he was even exploring faith in Jesus because he was thinking, ah, if they know that I'm taking this seriously, they're going to you know, make fun of me or persecute me or whatever. And, uh, and so he wanted to meet Jesus at night to have conversations. Other people, when they encounter a king, and this is where I feel like our temptations might lead us, would be to start thinking very selfishly about our encounter with the king. Like, hey, you get a moment in the royal palace to talk to the king, what are you going to ask for? What's in it for you? What's in it for me? And that's like the crowds in John 6, which is a really sad story. Remember, John 6 is when Jesus fed the 5,000. So he multiplies the loaves and fishes, and everybody eats, and it says that they were so excited, the crowds, that they wanted to force him to be their king. And Jesus had to slip away from the crowd because they were in such an uproar. Well, then a few verses later, Jesus started teaching some hard truths, things they didn't want to hear, like your life has to change, your beliefs have to change. 
They all oh, no, we don't want to do that. And in fact, they even went to him and said, if you really want us to believe, if you really want us to believe, you would show us another miraculous sign. Jesus says, hey, what did, what did we just do? Um, and so what he revealed there was that they didn't have a heart to learn or grow or worship him as king. They were just in it for free food, right? And what, what benefits is this king going to give me? And as soon as there was no more benefit, all of those crowds dispersed. Everybody left. That's in John 6. So some people, that's how they think of meeting a king. What's in it for me? But here come these wise men. And they're just honored to meet the king. For them, their hearts are filled with joy. And, and I think that's so much the attitude I want to have. Like in John 4, the Samaritan woman, when she realized that Jesus was the Messiah, she ran to her village and started telling everybody about him. She was excited about meeting this king and all the life change that that represented for her. So what's your attitude when you encounter Jesus? You go, oh, I'm glad Jesus happened, but I, I kind of want to keep him at arm's length because I don't want my life to change that much. Um, or are you filled with joy? You say, of course, I want all that Jesus came to bring. Now, the next verse that we read in, uh, back in Matthew chapter 2 says, They entered the house, the wise men, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. So here this speaks to their posture. Think, when do you bow down before someone? And we're not really used to it in our culture, are we? But when would you do it? If you recognize that they're somehow deserving of great honor and respect, Right? Or if they're somehow way higher than you are on some sort of pecking order and you might kind of like get low and say, hey, you go first or oh, well, I'm here to serve you, you don't have to serve me. Uh, that was their attitude, which I think culturally would have been really interesting for them because these were rich and potentially learned, maybe even powerful men uh, that had come in with this entourage and they were used to being the ones treated as royalty. So can you imagine these, this, this entourage coming in? I, who knows how many people are part of this, but you can imagine it's a pretty big deal. Camels and uh, all, all sorts of servants and everybody coming in and these kingly-looking robes and all these people walking through. And they come to this humble little village in Israel and they, and they knock on the door of a little peasant household and there's Mary and Joseph just looking like average people. And then there's this little baby or this little, some people debate about when this happened, but their baby or toddler as far as the narrative is concerned. And, and, and they bow down. Say, normally the peasants would be bowing down to these guys, right? But here they come in and they, they recognize they're in the presence of a king that transcends their type of authority or their type of wealth. So they bow down, they worship him. I think of uh, Philippians chapter 2, if you want to turn there real quick, just to see how this dynamic of posture plays into really the whole story of Jesus. When Jesus came to this world, we recognize he humbled himself by becoming one of us. He left his throne in heaven and came here. And Philippians 2 describes what that would have been like. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so just, just to make it practical, look down at your knees for a moment and recognize, okay, those knees in one way or another are going to bow down and admit that Jesus is the Lord. There's two ways that can happen, either voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, so the people that have stiff knees, the people who say, I bow to no one, um, one day they'll end up bowing and recognizing the Lordship of Jesus. It won't be a pretty sight. They'll, they'll wait all the way until Judgment Day before finally they'll bow. Others, like the wise men, seek God, find the truth, and they willingly bow. They joyfully bow. Because, of course, the king of the universe, the creator of everything, of course I would bow to him. And so our knees will all bow before Jesus. The question is not if they will, it's when will they bow. Okay, the next verse then in verse 11, or the next sentence of verse 11 then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So very royal gifts. There's actually a lot of theory out there about what these three gifts represented. Interestingly, in the Bible, there's really no other information than that. So any theory you build is not really a scriptural theory. It would just be cultural, historical. All we know is that they opened up their treasure chests and they gave these three things. Three things that would have been very expensive, very out of reach for a family like Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, um, the, kind of king, the kind of kingly gifts that you would bring to another king. So in the ancient world, whichever king was kind of the top dog in some sort of an alliance, he wouldn't have to bring gifts, but all the other kings, all the secondary kings, if they wanted to visit the top dog king, they would bring gifts. So sometimes, you know, it's elephants, so probably not white elephants, probably gray ones, you know. They would bring, they would bring gold. They, they would bring maybe even servants or food from their place. Or, that whatever they had that was valuable, they would give that as a way of honoring the king and recognizing, hey, you know, hey, we're all important here, but we all know you're more important, okay? So here these wise men are following the same tradition. They themselves are probably pretty important people. But they recognize when they come to the presence of Jesus, they have to bring something. I think that's pretty significant. So gold, obviously valuable, royal throughout all of human history. It's been a store of value. Um, so that would be a really important one. Frankincense was used not, not only in temple worship situations. There's all sorts of interesting things to learn about what all three of these could have meant as it relates to who Jesus was and what he would eventually do and what Mary and Joseph needed. But again, I say all those are theories. They're all really interesting. You can Google it and find out things about it. Um, but this is what we know from the Scriptures, just with, right there on the screen. We know these are all very valuable. Giving to a king out of a heart of worship is not the same as giving to meet a need with generosity. If I look at the three gifts they brought, I think these are not the gifts that you would bring to someone who's in need. These are extravagant gifts. Right? These are royal gifts. Do you, do you bring a gift to a king because he needs your gift? No. Now, sometimes, like generosity, a lot of times at Christmas time, we're all compelled for generosity. That's great. Most of the time, we're thinking about meeting needs of people, and we're thinking, like, who has great need that we could step in and help them somehow or serve them somehow? That's wonderful. That's compassion. That's love. But that's different than worship. Would you agree with that? When you worship, when you bring something of value to a king, it has more to do with the value to you as the giver than it does the value to them as the receiver. So here comes these wise men. They're giving Jesus gifts 
He doesn't need these gifts. They need to give these gifts. They need to demonstrate how much Jesus is worth to them. And when we would bring a gift to a royal palace, we wouldn't be thinking, wow, this royal palace is going to be definitely blessed by my gift. Uh, we're thinking it's my privilege to bring something that I count as valuable and hand it to them. Okay, so think of this. Are both of these legitimate gifts that you could give someone? Okay, um, bowl of rice. Would a bowl of rice be potentially a wonderful, life-saving, important gift to give to somebody who's hungry? Yes, right? Um, could you buy more bowls of rice if you didn't buy the diamond ring? Now, probably thousands of more bowls of rice, right? Uh, the rice is a way better deal if you want to be generous than a diamond ring. So why in the world would you ever give someone a diamond ring? Should we call them out? Shepard, why would you give someone a golden ring? <laughs> Shepard and Alana just got engaged this week. The, uh, why would you? It's because it's not because the diamond, the, the diamond ring meets a need. It's because it's an expression of love, right? It's an expression of value. So sometimes when we're giving, we get strategic, which is great. And we say, how can I do the most good with my dollars I'm going to donate to something? That's important. Do that. But that's different than worship. Okay, that might be strategic, and that might be loving, and that's part of the whole deal. But when you, when you think about presenting something to Jesus, it's not about can you get a really good deal on your worship. It's more about can I give Jesus what matters the most to me as a way of showing him how much he means to me. That's what worship looks like. Okay? So giving to accomplish things or help people focuses on efficiency. And I'm a proponent of that. I definitely think we should do that. But giving to demonstrate worship and love embraces extravagance. So I think of another story from John when Lazarus, Jesus rose, raised Lazarus from the dead and his sister Mary was so overcome with thankfulness that it says in John 12 that she came into their meeting with this box of extremely expensive perfume and she broke this box and put it all over Jesus' feet. Okay? And Judas who worked for one of those charity watchdog groups, said, hold on a second. That doesn't seem like a very efficient use of that gift. Remember what Judas said? Could this have been sold and all the money given to the poor? And then it says that Judas was also helping himself to some of that money, right? So there are mixed motives there for Judas. But Judas misunderstood. This was not a gift of efficiency to meet needs, this was a gift of love from Mary to Jesus, and for her, the most valuable thing she owned was this box of perfume. So when she breaks it to give it to Jesus, for her, that's, that's the highest form of worship that she could bring to the table. That makes sense? So, so here come the wise men. They're bringing gifts that are worthy of a king, not necessarily to try to be efficient about it, not to be strategic, but instead to show the worth of Jesus to them. So, have you ever given an extravagant gift to Jesus that poured out of your joyful heart of love for Him? We're probably all given lots of gifts, right? Gifts to one another, gifts to charities. Uh, maybe you've given to God. Um, have you ever done that? And what would that look like? I don't think this just looks like, hey, give money to a church. That might be way down on the list, right? 
This is what's most valuable to you. You give that. So I think about some people I know have plenty of money, but what they don't really have is time. So for them, it would be easier actually to write a check and say, here's a gift, than it would be for them to give a little piece of themselves, right? So for that person, what should they come to worship Jesus with? Here's my check? No. They should come and say, Lord, here's, here's my time. You're more valuable to me than all the other things I have going on in my life. For some people, it's, it's just, it's, there's, there's a range of things that they would be holding on to and saying, this is, this is what I care the most about. Those are the things that we can choose to give. So for the wise men, giving valuable gifts was the capstone of their journey of faith. There's so much faith involved in everything they did, from packing up and leaving their home country and going all this way, carrying these gifts along with them, anticipating giving them to the king that they'd never met. They didn't even know what he looked like, but they, they were bringing all this value along for this ride. Um, so much faith involved in what they did. They'd read the prophecies, they'd left their homes, they were traveling, and now they're actually bowing down before Jesus and they're giving in faith. So, what's the right gift from you for Jesus this Christmas? You imagine the guy getting down on one knee and saying, you know, honey, I love you so much and I want to ask for your hand in marriage. Here's, here's my bowl of rice um, to, to seal our commitment. No, I don't think that would work. That wouldn't be a fitting gift in that situation, would it? Um, instead, you say, Here, here's the best I have. Here's something immensely valuable to me that I want to give to you to show how much I love you. And that's what we can do when we bow down before Jesus. Say, Lord, in light of all that you've done for me, in light of the fact that Jesus himself, this whole story is God's great gift to us. Now we find him, we seek him and we find him, and in return we say, Lord, of course I want to give you what is most valuable to me. So let's pray. Let's ask for help as we consider what our gift to Jesus would be this year. Lord, we just want to take a moment and consider all the things that we hold on to, our money, our time, our reputations, our schedules, our traditions, a whole host of things that have value to us. And Lord, I, at least for me, I, I would want to be one of those wise men that would put that value on the table. So right now I do that, Lord. I recognize your great worth to me, and I want to give you the most worth that I have. Would you help all of us as we get ready for tomorrow. A lot of us probably preoccupied with a lot of giving to one another and tying up details and hosting people and enjoying things. Um, help us in all of that to still recognize this is actually your birthday, not ours. And this is a celebration of your salvation. And as a result of that, Lord, we want to give you a gift that is fitting for you as our king. Would you help us as we consider what that should be? We pray this in Jesus' name.